Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 6th, 2021, the Martyrdom of Liz Cheney edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C., where when I look out my window, I see Liz Cheney being dragged down the street. Oh, no, she's not. I didn't see that. I am joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. And John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes, who is right now John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation, because he's doing a season-long stint hosting Face the Nation. Hello, John. That's right. Hello, David. So watch Face the Nation again, now that John's back on it. Yeah, it's been two weeks, and I can't, it's, it's, it's so strange to think that I did that show for two and a half years. I don't know. It's a very, it's a weird, it's, 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 um, uh, it, it both feels. Trademark eloquence from John Dickerson. <laughs> familiar. And also, I guess, cause it's in a new studio. Anyway, um, that was, that wasn't terribly eloquent, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Ratings are definitely up though. With the coming defenestration of Liz Cheney, the transformation of the Republican party into a delusional anti-democratic Trumpist conspiracy is complete. That will be our first topic. Our second topic, the Facebook Supreme Court has spoken and Donald Trump still cannot be on that social platform. What a lucky duck. I wish I couldn't be on Facebook. That would be great. You can't. You could take yourself off. Good grief. That's true. That's true. It was a joke, Emily. Then... No, I'm too literal for a joke like that. <laughs> I can't handle it. Go ahead. Then America's at meat wars. Are we headed for a meatless world? A meatless country, or will it be just another culture war that we have to fight? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Oh, woof. It was such a funny story. You saw that former Justice Breyer totally botched his stint guest hosting Jeopardy this week. He was supposed to do it for a week, and they pulled him after just one day because he just failed to understand that on Jeopardy, he gives the answers and the contestants ask the questions. He kept trying to turn the answers on the board into questions. Like it was the Supreme Court hearing. It was crazy. Breyer says that after a lifetime of asking questions from the bench, he was perplexed by the Jeopardy format and that he hopes to be a judge on American Idol instead. This, of course, did not happen because he is still, he's still, still in the court. Still there. Any Breyer retirement news this week, Emily? No. I thought you were going to say that that Facebook, in an effort to improve its relations with uh, mankind, had opened up a seat on the Facebook Supreme Court um, for Justice Breyer. So that, I thought about doing that, but that seemed like the easy the easy play. Yeah. Well, was, the Jeopardy was, the, the was Jeopardy stretching. route was was well worth. Jeopardy the, was good. So David, actually, um, Kimberly Robinson took a look at the craziest hypotheticals that Stephen Breyer has used in asking questions from the bench in the last three decades. So you can use that as your fodder for next week if you choose. Oh, I'd love to see it. Liz Cheney, the House Republican from Wyoming, 
herself the daughter of a very conservative vice president of the United States, will be dethroned as the Republican conference chair, most likely, very soon. Mitt Romney, the 2012 Republican nominee for president, was lustily booed and nearly censured by the Republicans in his home state of Utah. Romney and Cheney are, of course, apostates now in a Republican Party that requires not merely loyalty to former President Trump, but fealty to a delusion that the 2020 election was stolen. This party, which has been headed in a dangerous direction for years, is now fundamentally anti-democratic, dishonest, and incredibly threatening to to the very country we live in, the government, we the, the principles by which we have been governed. So, John, let's start with Cheney for a minute. Why is the Republican Party likely to dethrone Cheney from her leadership position? They don't like to be reminded of the fact that they are and have been trying to distance themselves from the 6th of January and kiss up to, to Donald Trump. I know that people are sick of this, but ever since the election, I've been talking about this market that Donald Trump created. Um, that market is in full and roaring operation. And Donald Trump doesn't necessarily have to even, as I have, I think this is still true, in part because I've been saying it, um, confirmation bias. Um, he doesn't even have to have a very good website. He doesn't have to have a very good anything. The market still exists because 70% of the Republican Party think the election was stolen through fraud and that Joe Biden is not the rightful president. And that's the second part of why this is important. So Liz Cheney is an embarrassment to those people who, Kevin McCarthy in particular, who blame Donald Trump for the insurrection and now in an extraordinary reversal. The thing that he cites is the statement that Facebook used to ban him from the platform in which he says, we should, you should remember this day forever, calls the rioters patriots, says we love you all. And that was the comment for which Trump was suspended from Facebook for supporting violence. And also, by the way, it's sort of amusing because as Liz Cheney is saying, remember this day forever, and many Republicans are saying, move on. <laughs> Donald Trump was the one who said you should remember this day forever, obviously for different reasons. But the second important thing is when you're a leader, and John Boehner writes about this in his book, as he says, uh, you know, a leader with no followers is just taking a walk. Liz Cheney is out of step with the people she's trying to lead. And they are listening to the voices of the voters who believe that the big lie is true and that the 6th of January was not that big a deal. You can't lead people if you are fundamentally at odds with their points of view. It's no longer possible for her to lead and be a leader in a party that is that where this is the central, you know, is a part of the central tenets. So, John, you feel like this is a necessary step for them, given how out of step she is with the voters? Well, I think, yes, for two reasons. One, um, everybody's ambitious, and why not get her out of the way? Two, they can't have unpredictability. They're trying to be in message lockstep, which is kind of this, you know, we're moving on from the 6th of January, but Donald Trump is still the leader of our party. <laughs> They're trying to kind of create a new message, and you can't have somebody in leadership constantly saying, no, no, you can't have this new message because it's totally antithetical to everything we believe and the entire platform and structure of the way we approached public life for the previous generation of this party or two generations of this party. You can't have somebody around who keeps rem reminding you of that. Secondly, in order to be successful, John Boehner writes about this in his book, too. At one point, he, he's like fighting against Ted Cruz and his crazy idea about shutting the government down 
to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. And at some point, Boehner says, I had to, as leader of the party, after trying to kill this idea and failing in every possible way, I had to be a leader. And so he, so now you can debate whether he's telling you the truth or not. But his point was, at some point, you have to carry as the leader elected by your members, you have to carry their their belief system. You have to promote their belief system. That's what they've elected you to do. And she can't carry their belief system because so that's not just if you're answered a question, you know, if you're asked a question, was the election legitimate or not answering it? It means promoting the idea that Donald Trump was the legitimate president for the purposes of raising money, for the purposes of of getting voters to turn out in the off year election. She's obviously not you know, willing to be engaged in any of that. So I guess there's sort of two things that strike me here. I mean, one is that I was confused about why this like uh, reappeared because I thought she had survived a leadership challenge after January and like why now? And it seemed like part of the answer to why now is that Trump continues to say that he won the election and that we're seeing this, you know, super suspect recount effort in Arizona and then obviously the passing of, of these bills in various states, Georgia, Texas, Florida, restricting voting. And so that it's Trump that is putting this on the agenda. And I guess the the second just obvious point is that, um, but well, the second quick point is just that Trump is going further, right? It's different to say I'm contesting the election, even up until Inauguration Day, than it is to say I am still the legitimate president. Like, I am your king from afar. I mean, it's like the papal split in the whatever century. Like, that is... As I, I mean, whatever, they're all fundamental threats to democracy, but let's not overlook the extremity of that one. But Emily, I, I, I guess you're attributing this to Trump, but I think that that takes uh, that takes agency and responsibility from away from parties. from these members of Congress who don't have to. You know, tr- Trump. It's true is remains a you know this towering presence looming over this country and particularly looming over the Republican Party, and he does have the chance to speak on conservative media and so forth. But they could choose, they they could choose to not focus on this. They could choose to not introduce bills to restrict voting. They could choose not to do recounts. It is not that Trump has ordered them to do these things. It's they are they are sycophants to an emperor who no longer rules. And it I just think like the idea that it is Donald Trump who is responsible for the degradation of the Republican Party is a real uh, it's a real letting off of the hook of the hundreds and thousands of elected officials in that party who have chosen for extremely grotesque careerist reasons to go along with it. Like it's not Trump who's making them do this. They are they're doing it all on their own. I think that that, that there is no doubt, but that that's true. And what's also Liz Cheney. So Elise Stefanik, the New York congresswoman who looks likely to replace Cheney, is a more liberal, has a more liberal voting record than the Club for Growth, uh, a somewhat mercurial conservative um, organization, mercurial because they're fiscal conservatives, but they supported Donald Trump, who um, added trillions and trillions to the to the deficit. But really, they're more of a kind of a pro tax cutting organization. and, And obviously, they like him for that reason. They ended up supporting Trump, but now are saying that Stefanik shouldn't be elevated because she's not a conservative. So if you look at ideologically what used to be the set of beliefs at the heart of the conservative movement, Liz Cheney is is a, a far more of a conservative person. So ideologically, this also continues a tradition started by Donald Trump of slowly, or maybe quickly actually, 
absolutely delinking the party from any of the things that it spent the previous couple of generations talking about, whether it's deficit reduction, personal morality, the necessity of fixed standards in a changing world. Um, all of those things have not just been sashayed by, but absolutely drowned in the bathtub in order to sort of participate in this new birth of, of a Trump party. Yeah, I mean, let's also remember Liz Cheney's hugely hawkish record, right? I mean, this is someone who also, like, that is a big part of her whole profile. To me, what this has been is an unwelcome wake-up call. I think I thought that, like, there was this, you know, awfulness around the election and a kind of hangover from it, and then I held out some hope that we were going to just, like, wake up and move on and, like, drink our coffee and eat our eggs and, like go for a nice walk or even run. And we're not. Like, this big lie about the election is completely affecting the Republican Party and Republican officials in the way that you have both said. It is directly responsible for this wave of voting restriction legislation, which goes to the integrity of the vote count, right? I mean, there's like making the lines longer at the polls, which is bad, but familiar. And then there's changing who and what kind of bodies have power over ensuring that the count happens in an orderly fashion, as it absolutely did in every state in 2020. I mean, we were really flirting with the kind of breakdown in the actual integrity of the election that we worried about in the last election. And that is shocking to me. Like, it makes me feel like I've sort of been lulled to sleep in the last few months by the seeming normalcy of the American government in the hands of Joe Biden. But actually, there's all this stuff going on underneath, and it's really bad for democracy. So and I would just add to that both the past and the future, which is before January 6th, which is um, important enough, but before January 6th, the epistemological crisis that it highlights, the difference between reality and a wholly made fiction, was at the center of the failed administration response to COVID-19. It was a refusal to, to face up to the reality that the administration was, was facing, and it continued misinformation of the public when the president knew better that contributed to the poor response for COVID-19. So there's a linkage there between those two things. And then in the future, how do you make laws when when an alternate reality is so firm and so um, fixed and such and, and, and operates with such dominion over a party? How do you debate policy uh, when argumentation can just be made up and mountains of facts are impervious to that partisan shell? You don't. You, it is not, it is, it's gone. I mean, that's... Or you pass delusion-based laws like these voting restrictions the, when you control all the apparatus of government I, I, in particular states. I want to linger on Elise Stefanik for a second because I don't know if you guys remember, but Amanda Ripley came, who's frequent GabFest guest, came on maybe a year or two years ago to talk that about... That story she did about that town in New York. A town in right? New York. It was a town in New York, which... which like where people got along. It was sort of like, here's a place where people still managed to get along. And that's Elise Stefanik's district. And it, she is the story of that, which is that she was a moderate Republican, Paul Ryan staffer in a district that was that sort of swung back and forth. That district has now become extremely conservative in a very short time. The issues that, that were sort of quiet or, or sidelined have become front and center, simmering, boiling culture war issues and that 
the, the, the peace, the peaceableness and the agreeableness and the kind of get alongness of that district, I think probably has subsided in the way uh, that you'd exp- that like it has everywhere else. And it's um, it's just kind of tragic. It's just tragic. Where do you guys the, think that that Mitt Romney goes now? I mean, Mitt, oh, uh, Mitt Romney, like I, I, I know Liz Cheney, Liz Cheney's you know, belief system is not mine. Her where she stands on issues is not mine. Liz Cheney is, is is like incredibly brave right now. It is not easy to do what she's doing, and it is not easy to do what Mitt Romney is doing. And I wish there was some way that they could find a home somewhere. And well, they could start a third party, so, or just become independents, like. Angus King in Maine. I mean, I was really struck by that watching the booing of Mitt Romney. I was thinking about how I would feel if hundreds of people who were my people were booing me. And I was like standing up for this principle that takes me away from all the things I normally write. Like what Mitt Romney wanted to do was get up there and criticize Joe Biden. He did not want to get up there and like have a fight with his own supporters. That's that is no fun. And obviously, it is a huge disincentive for anyone to join him because you're paying this price in personal humiliation and discomfort. I, you know, Stefanik's district is interesting because I think it was only a plus four Republican, which means this is like on a knife's edge. Obama won it by quite a lot and then Trump won it. But what's interesting is whether it becomes, whether you could make the case that it's a microcosm for the party right now. In other words, Obama, then Trump, and then kind of stuck on the Trump um, uh, path. Um, going back to your point, David, about, I mean, uh, Elise Stefanik was the one that if you if you talk to Republican leaders and said, gee, Donald Trump is doing all these things that seem to be turning off suburban women and, and angering Democrats, they'd say, Elise Stefanik. In other words, they'd say younger and female. In other words, our party is defined by her and not by Donald Trump. And it's been amazing to see her, Harvard removed her from her advisory position or whatever it was in the School of Politics because her statements about the 2020 election were lies. I mean, they removed her because of that. So, I mean, that's that's quite a distance one travels when you are sort of a Republican sufficiently liberal to make it onto Harvard's anything and then having to be removed for it. Um, so it's it'll be fascinating if she gets into leadership. I mean, on a granular level, like my tiny window into um, misinformation and its entrenchment among ordinary voters, my window into suburban Connecticut, it is like really entrenched. I mean, people just believe what they believe at this point about the election, about COVID. It, it can be 150% wrong, whatever multiple you want to use. And like, it's really hard to unstick it. There's a really good This American Life segment from a week or two ago with Frank Luntz doing a focus group of people who he was trying to get to open their minds to getting vaccinated. And it gets at some of this, like just how how hard it is to change people's minds right now. You are, you, you're you hundred percent right. I just had an experience, a series of experiences where that was proved uh, indelibly. Although our uh, friend of the show, Dan Diamond of the Washington Post, who wrote about the Frank Luntz focus group, sent me a note and said that eight of the 19 focus group participants who were hesitant in mid-March have since gotten vaccinated or scheduled to. So his point was that you minds can change if the information gets to people in in the right way, um, and well, that's uh, heartening. It is, but but like deliberative polling, getting the information there the right way 
is a, is a massive, long-term, careful, methodical, patient. Like, I mean, you got to do a lot just to get a couple of people to change their minds. Yeah. And that's difficult to do in the current environment. Yeah. And if you think about, you know, Tucker Carlson, who's who's spewing the most dangerous, destructive lies to millions and millions of these people every night, that's that's a lot louder and a lot more effective probably than one tiny focus group. I mean, those are probably the only, those eight people are the only eight people in the thousands and thousands and thousands like them that have gotten vaccinated, I would fear. Do you guys see that stat that, you know, like something like 35% of police officers have gotten vaccinated? It's just... The military is under 30%, I think. Um, oh my God. This leads me back to the reconciliation, which, you know, the parliament, parliamentarian in the Senate has has affirmed the idea that Democrats can pass more than one bill through reconciliation. I'm sort of eliding some of the complexity there, but uh, that's probably a good thing. But yeah, I thought yeah, you were going to talk about like the national reconciliation, like that we were that you had a path forward to a national reconciliation. Truth no, no. and reconciliation, and I yeah. believe is the phrase. No, I think we probably Well, you know, that's one of the things. Be legislative foo for uh, that's one of the things Liz Cheney is calling for is basically a um, is a commission to look at what happened on the 6th of January. But in terms of reconciliation in the Senate, the reason, you know, if it's if it's impossible to make policy, which which Barack Obama believed when he left office, because Republicans who even work with you aren't going to be with you at the end when the vote takes place, then reconciliation is the only way to get whatever Biden wants through Congress. I tried to get Ron Klain, the chief of staff, to to buy this theory on Face the Nation, and he was he was not he was not uh, signing up to it, but um, it seems to me to be inevitable, and I know that a lot of the people in the White House think it's inevitable too. So anyway, this will have a connection to the policy debates in the ne- in the coming weeks. This idea of of a kind of impenetrable partisan shell. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the Gab Fest, other Slate podcasts. It's just $1 for your first month of Slate Plus membership. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member. And our bonus segment this week, we're going to talk about how the events of the past decade, how our life experience of the past decade, how our work in the past decade has changed or not changed our willingness to express our own opinions uh, as journalists in out in the world. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus today to become a member. This episode of The Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Facebook Oversight Board issued a semi-ruling on Wednesday upholding Facebook's ban on President Trump that it made very suddenly on January 7th, I think, after the events of January 6th, but insisting that the company make a more permanent decision based on clear standards to decide the long-term fate of his ban, whether he will be allowed back, whether he'll be banned for a particular term, uh, whether he will never be allowed back, whether he's allowed back now. In any case, to set standards that are clear for his return, because they're, the board said that basically Facebook bounced him for no clear set of reasons, although they supported Facebook's right to do that, I suppose. The Facebook in the interim, they said no. In this indefinite suspension was not valid. And anyway, sorry. Right, right. Thank you. Uh, The Facebook Supreme Court is uh, not yet dominated by originalists. There is no Justice Breyer hanging on it yet. Um, That's effectively a punt, right, Emily? They punted the decision back to Zuckerberg, who doesn't really want it. I mean, yeah, that was the headline. I sort of thought that wasn't the greatest headline. To me, the time delay is actually like welcome. So. Trump stays off of social media, which deprives him of this powerful tool for getting his message out and his fundraising. The board bought into the idea that that was a deserved punishment based on the supporting of violence that he was doing on January 6th and pointed to these particular posts, which John talked about earlier. And then they said, this indefinite suspension is mushy. You don't have this category in your rules. Go figure out whether you want to permanently ban him or let him back on. And I feel like, fair enough. But they also gave Facebook six months to do that, which is a nice respite for everyone, right? Like, Time matters in this conversation because the world moves on without Donald Trump on Facebook and and that has its own momentum and creates different choices down the line. So I actually felt like I guess it was a punt, but it was a pretty meaningful punt because it, it stopped the game for a long time. Oh, my God. Did I just realize something is was the election six months ago today? I was just trying to think of what what is this path, a span of time of six months, and the election I think was six months today, which doesn't feel that long. So I'm just noting. Huh? That's really interesting. Maybe you're right. Do you think Emily? Like, for, can you just explain also quickly what this Facebook Oversight Board is? Yeah, so the idea of this was that Zuckerberg got tired of all the blowback for these difficult policy decisions that everybody knows, like, ultimately come down to him, right? He is the czar of this enormous social media platform that operates effectively as the world's public square, especially when you include Instagram and, um, and to a degree, WhatsApp in its domain. And this effective public square is very much a private mall in which there is a set of rules and a police force of low-paid content moderators around the world making tons and tons of decisions about who gets to say what 
in this mall slash social media platform. And everyone knows that Zuckerberg is the czar of that. And that's become deeply uncomfortable. So the idea was you have this, quote, independent oversight body. Right now it has 20 people around the world on it, former politicians, activists, academics, I think a couple journalists, and they're going to be like the appellate body where if you get, first it was just if you had content removed, now they're actually also dealing with not taking down content decisions. And they're going to review it and create basically like over time a body of case law that's going to help these content moderators. And the decisions they make that are case specific, the company agreed to abide by. And then the board also has the power to make recommendations that the company can ignore if it chooses, but are out there as some kind of critique of the company. So that's the idea. It had just gotten going. Then this indefinite suspension comes down for Trump and the board agrees to hear that case. And suddenly it becomes much more important, right? Because this is such a big move for it to make that there are major headlines. And I think maybe my favorite thing about this case is now more people are just going to understand what the hell this board is. And my other favorite thing is that this board is deeply critical of Facebook in the ways many of its academic and journalist critics have been for years. The lack of transparency, the vagueness, the fact that like you can't see how they're enforcing its rules, like all kinds of stuff. One of my favorite commentators in this space, Evelyn Dueck, who's a lecturer at Harvard, she pointed out like she learned things from this decision she didn't know, and she follows this stuff super, super closely. Like, for example, if you're a world leader or someone else with a big prominent account and your, uh, your posts get flagged for breaking the rules, there's a cross-check system in place. They don't just take it down like they do with other people. They look at it and see, like, does this really violate the rules? And in Trump's case, there were like 20 posts that got flagged and then someone higher up the food chain said, no, 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 this can stay up. So that's pretty interesting. And I guess the last thing I'll say is there's a real limitation on the board's role, at least at the moment, in that it's not directly responsible or having any say in Facebook's product and design. So the way the algorithms operate, the way that they right, magnify right. and amplify hot yeah. speech the way that they magnify lies, like the board can't go in and it doesn't even really know how that works. Yes. But at least it's pointing that out and saying to Facebook, like, hey, you should rethink some of these things. And I think that's useful. That to me is the biggest, like the board, it's interesting. Yeah, sure, they slap Facebook's wrist for having an indeterminate period. That to me seems like, oh, sure, that's interesting. But like the bigger thing is that the entire model and the way Facebook operates is to drive us towards this madness. Yes. <laughs> and like, yes. that's that's not just the elephant in the room, it's the herd of elephants in the phone booth. Like, it's huge. And that's not, that needs to always be like at the beginning of every sentence um, because that's what's exacerbating the epistemological crisis. It's yes. not, I mean, the epistemological crisis has many, many, many other roots. Yes, but and it's not just rooted in social media. Precisely, uh, totally true. But in, to the extent that we're talking about that part of the elephant, yes. let's talk about the most important part. And, and that seems to have been kind of, um, uh, I would like more discussion of that. Yeah, thank you, John. I've had, that's I was looking at my list of questions here, and they're really not questions. They're just emphatic rants, emphatic statements. That. Exactly that point. I mean, Emily. I mean, again, as our resident Facebook scholar <laughs> or non-resident Facebook scholar, 
it, it, like social media is an experiment that has failed. It is wicked. It is it has been a test of human nature. We have failed it. It's had catastrophic <laughs> consequences. It's built on a canard about the nature of free speech, like this notion that free speech, whatever, however we at Facebook define it, that that speech is productive, and in, and that we are encouraging engaged citizenry. And in fact, like it is by manipulation by promotion by how it uses algorithm is causing division violence hatred contempt all inflammation of all the all the muscles and and joints of our bodies like they could if they really cared they could just downrate every single political post they could like you put something up about politics yeah it could exist but they would never show it to any of your friends they could just show your friends the stuff you put up about your cat and like the world would be a much happier and better place, but they they refuse to do that because they are they are optimizing for whatever it is engagement, and engagement is bad. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing to me to bring this back to this board is that my fear of the board was that it was going to just perpetuate the company having all of this power, right? Like, oh, we have this board, we don't need any governments to get involved. Um, and that still worries me. But the board itself is drawing attention, I think, to how inadequate the current processes are. Like, all it can do is jump up and down and say more transparency. It can't make Facebook do that. The only entities that have the power to require more transparency are, P are regulators. And so to the degree to which we're just surfacing these questions and showing how much power this company has and how effectively um, unaccountable it is, I actually think that is kind of useful. Because I still think that the only answer to this lies with some kind of government involvement and oversight. And again, I'm not talking about like a federal department of content moderation, but I am talking about some kind of agency that protects consumers from disinformation and propaganda, the way that we have, you know, some kind of analog with like the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau or consumer safety. And one thing to also keep in mind in the context of this conversation is who the overwhelming um, uh, overwhelmingly popular publishers are on Facebook. And it's not just conservative versus liberal. It's way at the farthest right end of conservative bordering into its fringes. And that's not even a part of this deplatforming or not conversation, but it is a part of the bigger thing we're talking about, which is does the platform publicly, is it built in a way that basically gives a huge advantage to the shameless and the destructive? And and that is just should be, why, I don't know. Why, like, why is shamelessness rewarded now in ways that it was used to be punished? Is it that, is it that you, if you live in a world where most of your encounters are face-to-face -face and intimate, that people who are shameless are effectively shunned and, and, and sidelined, whereas if your encounters are electronic, you can find a constituency and your annoying quality, the qualities that make shameless and, and people so annoying are not so visible when it's just electronic communication. Is that why shameless people get away with what they, this in a way that they didn't used to be able to get away with it? I mean, well, this that's... is such a huge question, right? Because like, there's so many mores that go into shame. I mean, part of it you could argue is like a fracturing of wh what correct conduct is. And some of that's good because it opens up more freedom for people's behavior, which turns out not to be harmful. And then the other thing is like, in a way there is 
all the more shaming. It just depends who you are, right, in terms of whether you care about the shaming and whether it's your in-group that's shaming you because, like, that's a problem in cancel culture, right? People lose their jobs because of shaming in certain contexts on the right and the left. And then in other contexts, they're essentially rewarded for misbehavior. And Trump is kind of the er example of that. Right. So uh, let's let's close this topic with the question of where you guys think this is going. Is Facebook going to face any consequences from conservatives because it's it's perceived as having this anti-conservative bias? Although I think the best the best uh, thing should be is that conservatives should shut Facebook down and then see how happy they are. Like see what happens now. See this if they the, it's so biased against conservatives. If you shut Facebook down, like half of conservative activists couldn't communicate at all because that's where they talk as as john said but but is there going to be some sort of punishment of facebook and then how is trump going to communicate do you think well i don't know about the first emily you take the first let me just jump in on the second i think one of the interesting aspects of this i'd like to read more about is um or think more about is the way in which the deplatforming or just moving awful agitating voices from the center of conversation is how much it's like taking, you know, the pure stuff off the street for those people who are addicted to outrage and doom scrolling. So in other words, it's the question of whether you should give a platform or not to people who are saying things that are that are incendiary and wrong. But there's another way in which there's this whole group of throbbing people out there who basically live to be outraged and and removing Donald Trump from that perpetual outrage cycle is healthy and kind of has nothing to do with what he actually says and whether it's incendiary or not. I'm not suggesting this is a reason to keep him deplatformed, but um, but I think that secondary market of perpetual outrage uh, and the kind of constant w- sucking on the gap in the teeth um, of the tooth that has just fallen out is like a hugely welcome diminution since he has not had a Twitter and a Facebook account. Right. I mean, it's all about whether he has a frictionless path to communicate, right? He just started like a blog essentially called From the Desk of Donald Trump. And then the question is whether we, the media, whether people who have the microphones and are the gateway to mass consumption, how much we pick up those exclamation mark filled posts that someone, him or someone is writing. And so you're back to kind of gatekeeper world and that is probably a pretty healthy development, given the fact that Trump lies constantly, even though the lies were not actually what got him kicked off of Facebook. So I don't know. That'll be interesting. In terms of what happens next to Facebook, I mean, I continue to look to the Europeans. I think they are going to try some things with um, regulation, at least requiring more transparency, requiring the social media platforms to hold themselves to the standards that they set and to allow regulators to look inside to see if that is happening. That would be a really good first step. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I am not a vegetarian. I'm not even close to a vegetarian. But it is clear, even to me, that meat is a moral and ecological catastrophe. We're murdering 
billions upon billions of animals every year to feed ourselves. These animals that we're murdering mostly live lives that are filled with suffering. If you ever get the chance to look at a film from inside a chicken processing facility or chicken farm, I guess is what we used to call it, or a feedlot or a, a, even even a, a fish that's being farmed, it's, it's just sickening. The emissions that are required to raise and kill and transport these animals that we've turned into meat is enormous. Lamb and beef in particular are huge sources of emissions. But we're also living in an age of increasing prosperity that as people get richer across around the world, they want meat, like they love meat, they enjoy meat, it's delicious. We are omnivores and, and with a strong carnivorous streak. And at the same time, we're living in an age of innovation. We have meatless meats from Beyond Meats and Impossible Meats and many others. They're chickens that have been created that is actually chicken that's grown in a lab. It's chicken that no chicken was required to live and die for it. So, Emily, this meat question has become a whether we can whether we can live in a meatless or a less meaty world has become a culture war. To my surprise, I don't even know where it came from. But suddenly we have this as a culture war. Does it need to be a culture war? I mean, once it is a culture war, how do you stop? How do you like how do you dial it back from being a culture war? I don't actually think it's particularly surprising that it's a culture war because when you think about vegetarians and vegans, they tend to be like lefty oriented people more. And so, and I also think people deeply do not want to be told what to eat. Like they really, really don't. It's really personal. And there's like a class element of this because often vegetarian options cost more, at least like the, meat um, substitutes do. It also, I mean, I'm sorry, people can write in and disagree. I think it is more time consuming and harder to cook, to really eat good vegetarian food. Like you just have to chop endless quantities of things. That's what happens to me when I'm cooking in a vegetarian way. And I like vegetarian food. I'm not a critic of it. I just think it has costs in terms of like complexity and labor, frankly. And Everyone can disagree with me on that. So I'm not surprised that it's turning into a culture war, and it makes me really nervous. I mean, I totally see the argument for less meat. I am 100% for it. I would love for it to happen. I like the idea of these meat substitutes becoming much more widely available and cheaper. But I also think like it's important for people to tread a little carefully on this and to realize that they're interfering with, like, deep ideas people have about how they live on the planet, about their cooking traditions, about like how they live their lives. I, I think what you say is, is exactly right, um, Emily. And I think uh, Ezra Klein, who wrote a, a great piece, Let's Launch a Moonshot for Meatless Meat, is you can watch him in that piece carefully, tr- you know, trying not to step on those on those toes, um, and it's really a great—it's really a great piece of d- doing a lot of work in a short p- span of time. But I think also we should we we should acknowledge not taking a damn thing away from what you just said, Emily. But there's also one of the reasons this has become a, a cultural issue for the moment is you have a president who is has got a kind of Teflon quality in the sense that uh, conservatives or or whatever I guess Republicans uh, find it hard to attack him. So. 
one of the ways you can find a good issue is take what's the most personal thing to people. As you said, Emily, it's these choices of your basic behavior. That's why masks were incendiary. It's why what you put on your table for your family is incendiary. And how can we take the thing that irritates people to death and link it to something? And so when, you know, part of basically Biden's jobs plan is an environment plan. So, ah, Let's link that plan he's proposing so that every time he talks, people get this visceral feeling about the food they put on their table. And so part of this is orchestrated. Part of it's manufactured. But the secondary thing that interests me is that when um, Eleven Madison switched to, for I think artistic reasons, not for vegan, not for climate change. And reasons, Eleven Madison is, is a restaurant in Manhattan, right? A very fancy. Thank you. Yeah. Very, very, fancy. very, very Having fancy never heard restaurant. Of it myself before this. Yeah, um, but. Doing an all vegetarian or all is it all vegetarian or all vegan? I can't it's, remember. It's, but it, it's almost vegan. But there's a yeah. they serve milk with coffee. Right. Okay. So going <laughs> that vegan. That's so specific. But, I love that you had that fact at your disposal. I know it's really. But if you create a market of of high of basically can teach people how delicious vegetarian or vegan eating can be. I mean, obviously, at the high end, people aren't going to go pay three fifty five for a meal. But it does filter down through the process. And, and so perhaps that's the alternative, Emily, to your correct point, which is it's a, it takes so long to do. If there's a market for it, they'll find ways to make it easier to eat vegetarian. Do, do you guys think that the way this gets better, and it, I guess it can be an and, and answer, is the meat substitutes get better in the sense that they get more meat-like in fact, maybe they're lab-grown meats, and therefore you can eat meat and know that you are not contributing to the suffering of animals and you're contributing less to climate change. That's one way. Two is there is more successful evangelical uh, persuasive cooking of vegan and vegetarian food and in the way that John was just talking about, and that just sort of spreads out into the landscape so that that becomes easier and you know it better. people become more aware of the suffering of animals, which is really like horrible. It's really shocking and, and appalling. And like, that's the thing that is, it's almost, I don't know how we can eat knowing what animals go through to, to feed us. Uh, or finally, the f- fourth is that, that the awareness of climate change or the, or the restraints of climate change basically make it impossible for us to have so many cows and, and sheep in the world. Uh, and and feeding them, we just decide as a globe we just can't afford it. Which of those do you think? And wh- which of those is the most of, most effective way to reduce meat consumption? One, only one, in the short, which is medium term, better, in the United States of America. Meat. Yeah, and then you're going to have all the like, well, it's grown in a lab. Is it really okay to put in my body? Suspicion, which I also think they grow Doritos in a lab. <laughs> Happy to put that in my body. <laughs> good point. That is a good point. I think it's it do, do, really is it a lab or is it more of like a nuclear um, vat? The Doritos. I think it is where Dorito dusting is made. I would. I, I don't know how um, much Beyond and Impossible have woven their way into Greater America. It seems like they're. I mean, obviously Burger King and and I guess McDonald's too has made decisions to McDonald's more in a, in a slower way, but Burger King's made a bet on this. Is there a way in which this becomes just by osmosis takes over um, and people don't really even recognize it? But I don't understand why a person who doesn't have a larger superstructure for choosing 
meatless meat does so. Like, it, I mean, it has to be either cheaper or more flavorful. What, and what's that, what's that route? Well, and then the problem is, you were talking before about the problem of connecting Biden's jobs plan to subsidies for meatless products. If you don't have some government backing for this alternative, then it's really hard to imagine the price incentives changing in the short term. The, the real secret uh, carbon criminal here is cheese. Did you guys look at really? the Really? Oh, cheese no. Is, I didn't know that. Cheese is, is worse than pig or chicken, like by far. It goes beef. No, it's sorry. Lamb is first, then cow, then cheese. And this is on the Wait, energy consumption? On the energy carbon. Oh. I don't think that's right. I think it's beef by a long shot, then lamb, then farmed crustaceans, then cheese, then pork. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna look up. According to the New York Times, graph, I would like us to settle this. That's foods ranked by their climate emissions per gram of protein. Hold on. Nuts are really at the bottom of the. Oh, good! I eat um, a lot of nuts, which is good. I mean, but cheese—that's the one that hits me really. This is greenhouse gas emissions per kilogram, which I guess is not necessarily. And that has it's lamb, lamb, beef, cheese. Yeah, mine is not from the Times. <laughs> the oh man, that and the cheese because why? Because of cows, basically. Yeah, it's, it's cows. It's methane, yeah. massively methane-producing things. Um, oh man, do you are either of you guys vegetarian? No, but I mean, we the, because my daughter is. We eat a lot more vegetarian meals and because Anne's a good cook so we're kind of becoming more so we don't eat beef or lamb or pork or shellfish well I'm not going to speak for myself my children do various things um so but we do eat chicken and other fowl and we eat fish uh Jocelyn our producer who is a vegan of very long standing just sent me a note saying and I think like a vegan of great principle and and I bet is a great cook too. This is all silly compared to what we really need to do to solve climate change. Meatlessness just makes people feel good in a fictional way compared to the hard work that's actually needed. Huh, that's so interesting. I, don't think I that's thought that true. meatlessness was actually like an important missing part of the picture. I don't think that's true well, at all actually. Yeah. Although maybe not the individual the level of the individual meatless action oh right that, that it's like recycling it's like a thing that we do not given the rate of climate warning i think joss is probably right because she really knows a lot about this so that is an important well, coda to our discussion but changing the way we do agriculture is crucial to the climate i mean and that's not unaffected by individual right. choice in fact i think if you do every other climate mitigation measure and leave agriculture where it is you still go up by a degree and a half in whichever is the most recent timeline. That makes sense. I mean, I also, can I say one more thing about individual action, which is that I feel like it matters, even if it doesn't matter hugely on the graph, because it's what we can all do. And like sometimes that gets lost in these hyper-rationalist considerations. Also, by the way, vegetables. Good. Good for you. <laughs> Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you're having a vegetable-infused cocktail, maybe a something with made of gin from juniper berries and cucumber made from cucumber, uh, and vodka made from grain and uh, something else, some sugar made from sugar cane, no meat in your cocktail. What are you going to be chattering about, Emily? 
So I am reading um, a number of books at the moment. One of them is a new book on the new science of our ancient maternal instinct. It's called Mom Genes, G-E-N-E-S. It's by Abigail Tucker, who I should say I do know. And this is a book that is not my normal fare in that it's all about like the maternal instinct and has a lot of science in it. But it's very delightfully written, and I just found that it had great insights along the way about how, you know, the way other species are parents and the way, you know, human society has developed over time that's informed by our biology affects our parenting. And I think for me, it was, it's especially enjoyable to read right now because my second child is about to leave home. And so it sort of felt a little bit like a tour of, it was nostalgic to think about my kids being younger. And so I really enjoyed it. Again, it's called Mom Jeans, G-E-N-E-S by Abigail Tucker. John, what is your meatless cocktail chatter? I don't know if I've, um, I hope I haven't chattered about this before, but I'm in the middle of reading Clara and the Sun. Um, oh, I just read it. Did you like it? I liked it, yes. Yeah. And is it Kazu Ishiguro? Ka- uh, Kaz Ishiguro is how I've always heard it. Okay. Like his first name shortened. K- Kaz wrote uh, Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go and other books. Um, one, I guess, the Nobel. And I'm not done with it yet, but what I have, I don't know if this ruins it. I hope it doesn't. <laughs> I don't think it does. The narrator is 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 a art piece of, is artificial intelligence, a, a robot that is there to help um, this young girl, and the way in which the narrator's voice changes through the course of the book mirrors the iterative learning process of the artificial intelligence, and so you are experiencing what the book is writing about as you experience the book. And I thought that was quite clever. It's a beautiful book. I think if you read Never Let Me Go or saw the movie of Never Let Me Go, you should definitely read. And you should go read Never Let Me Go, which is really good. Yes. I think Never Let Me Go is better than Clara and the Sun. It's like they attempt to set out and solve a kind of similar set of problems, like to imagine what it is like to be a particular kind of being that is a new kind of being in the world that has a new relationship to other beings. Um, But Clara and the Sun is, it is a, it's a real feat of imagination. Right. And the way it operates on you is what struck me. And also it was funny when Emily was talking about being hyper literal, there's lots of amusing and not so amusing hyper literality in. Maybe I'm a robot and that's what's going on. Seems possible. (laughs) (laughs) You're most likely to be a robot of the three of us. Hmm. That doesn't seem like a compliment. That's my superlative. (laughs) Most likely to be a robot. Yeah, John is not a robot. And John is is definitely a distant distant third. (laughs) (laughs) You and I are very close. In fact, we may be artificial uh, friends, artificial companions to John. We may have been created. In the simulation. To be John's companions. Uh, My chatter is, it's a, it's about a TV show that I think I chatted about years ago called Drive to Survive, which is a weird thing to talk about on the GabFest. It's a Netflix uh, docuseries about Formula One racing. Formula One racing is a absolutely loathsome, reprehensible, completely without merit, climate change contributing playground of the most despicable, unlikable rich people and pretty boys and playboys that you can imagine. Yet this series is stunningly made it is beautiful 
the creation of the drama. If you've ever seen any sports documentary, this one crushes it. It is it's like hard knocks times ten, uh, or or a- any sports documentary you you've you've ever watched uh, will seem shoddily produced compared to this. And in particular, there's an episode, the ninth episode of the current season is about the near-death experience of one of the Formula One drivers who is caught in a just a, a unbelievably harrowing, terrifying crash, which he survived. And it's it's just, it's so moving, so powerful, so surprising, so human, and particularly so human when you contrast it against the other loathsome behavior that everyone else demonstrates during the series throughout the the past uh, seasons of it. And and so I really recommend watching at least the, the ninth episode of Drive to Survive, the current season. About you could the just crash skip of, to the ninth episode? That's I think you kosher. could. I think you could just watch the ninth episode. Yeah. It's, okay. a, it's about the crash of a driver named Roman Grosjean. And it's, wow, it's great. Listeners, you have been tweeting great cocktail chatters to us at AdSlightGabFest. Please keep them coming. Our listener chatter today comes from Michael Sagmeister. My chatter is about the article, Bad Software Sent Postal Workers to Jail, Because No One Wanted to Admit It Could Be Wrong, by Mitchell Clark in The Verge. For the past 20 years, the British Postal Service relied on a software called Horizon to uncover fraud and theft by employees. Since then, dozens of people have been sent to jail because the software flagged them as criminals, and in thousands of cases, more postal workers had to pay money back to cover for supposed shortfalls. The only problem is that none of that was true. The software had a bug that wrongly flagged people for stealing money, but no one within the postal service was willing to admit that the software could be wrong. Innocent people went to jail because of the software, lost their marriages, one even died by suicide. This year, the convictions were finally overturned. But it's an incredibly frightening and downright dystopian story about the power of technology and institutions over our lives. That is very upsetting. It was super disturbing story. Super duper disturbing. And it's one of these things where the officials kind of knew there was something wrong but didn't do anything and didn't, like, because it's the power of the algorithm. How can you resist? It is science. It's technology. (sighs) That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, vegan Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap, possible vegan. I don't know. don't think Bridget's a, a vegan. Don't know. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Bridget is a former vegetarian just in case you were keeping score. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We are going to do a Slate Plus topic that's inspired by listener Jay Frampson from Altadena, California. And Jay, I'll read Jay's question, although I think we're going to take it in a slightly different direction. I suspect you probably won't do this, but here goes. As a longtime GabFest listener, it seems like John has become more free about expressing his opinions than he used to be when he was a reporter with Slate. I'd like to hear him comment on whether he believes that to be the case, and if so, why he feels freer to do so, or if not, why does it feel that way? It seems like he doesn't feel the need to hide behind comments about polls and what one side says versus what the other side says, and is more willing to criticize things he feels are dangerous to the Republic. I'd love to hear his thoughts and what David and Emily's observations are. So I think the overall question is, like, do we as journalists, as we've gotten older, as 
perhaps the mores of journalism have changed as we've moved into different roles in our lives, as we've had new forums to talk. Do we feel freer about expressing our opinions? Shall I jump in? Sure. You start. <clears throat> so I think it's interesting. I, I mean, I think certainly there are some things that have changed. My appreciation, understanding uh, and reliance on polls has changed dramatically. I think that was affected most strongly by the fact that I, as skeptical as I have always been about anything anybody tells me about anything, um, which is not just comes from journalistic training, but from my uh, upbringing, um, and not just because my mother was a journalist, but because of the sometimes variation between truth and reality uh, in my own private life. I'm a pretty skeptical person. And however, spending years covering um, Republican politics and hearing voters and candidates talk incessantly about the importance of personal moral behavior, I was struck at the, not just the, the disconnect between that and voting for Donald Trump, but then the total rewiring of the way those bedrock issues are sorted by those same voters. And so when I was, you always knew that polls were messy and you always knew that they were off by some portion. And you always knew that people kind of said things like, I hate negative uh, television ads and then voted and behaved exactly as if they had been informed by the negative thing they heard. You always knew that. But but over the last number of years, um, the disconnect between what people say and the way they, they quickly change their views has um, changed my view on polls more so than the screw ups by polls, because I've always known that our job is to is often to get things wrong the first time around. I mean, going back to the beginning of the Republic, you don't just need to keep, you know, showing the Dewey v. defeats Truman headline to know that we try as best we can, but often we get things wrong. And so to keep in mind the kind of scientist mindset who is constantly trying to figure things out, saying what they know at the moment, and then is delighted to be proved wrong because it means you're closer to understanding something. You'd be, be you'd be better off if you were proved right. But so that mistake in polling, which is a big part of our current journalistic practice, was actually something that I, I always thought about. So that has to do with the polling, and I'm going to shut up in a second. But I think the, my other um, view of journalism is the same one I was trained with at Time Magazine, which is you report as much as you can, you talk to as many experts as possible, and then you don't say like, well, Joe says this and Mary says that, if the overwhelming amount of the evidence suggests that it's, you know, one definitive way. And then finally, Donald Trump broke most of the norms of our public square, requiring, uh, you know, a different kind of comment than you know, if maintaining the old order rely, um, adds to a net reduction in information, then maintaining the old order of the way you talk is not helpful to your ultimate goal as a journalist. Yeah, I mean, so you were talking, I think, about like the problems of false equivalency and both sidesism presenting things as equal when they're not. And I totally agree with that critique of journalism. Um, I often think about this quote from Linda Greenhouse, who covered the Supreme Court at the New York Times for many years with enormous distinction. And she says, like, sometimes stories actually turn out to have one side or many sides. Like, it's actually kind of unusual to have a storyline you're following that has two truly equal sides. And then part of your responsibility is to convey that different but accurate picture. 
GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.